Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9, and uh, we'll be looking this morning in verses 9 through 13. There are two essential truths that are found in Scripture which uh, many people struggle to reconcile with one another. Uh, one of them in First John tells us, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And the second one comes to us from John 3.16, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. If you spend any time in the church, you probably hear these two things all the time. You're not to love the world. You're not to love the world. You're not to be polluted. You're not to be uh, stained. You're not to be engaged maybe in the world. You are to be separate in some fashion or another. And at the same time, you hear that God loves the world. You may hear that all the time, the most popular verse in all of Scripture. Uh, we may speak it, but a lot of people struggle to reconcile what it means. In fact, some people uh, try to understand that verse only in a limited way. God only loved the world in a limited way. He only loved those that he chose for himself, and so therefore his love is not universal. The verse, however, doesn't allow for that. It is universal. God does love the world. The limiting factor is in the second part of the verse, and whosoever believes in him would not perish. God loves the world. God loves his creation God loves those who are saved, and God loves those who are perishing. There's a love, there's a mercy, there's an abundance of compassion in God's heart for all people. And if we're going to live out our Christian life, we've got to know how to reconcile these two truths, an understanding of the love that God has for the world and an understanding of our call not to love the world ourselves. Whatever your understanding is of not loving the world, in other words, if it leads you to avoid the very sinners who are supposed to be rescued by the loving mercy of God, then it's a distorted understanding. This is basic then, that we must love the world by being in the world and having contact with the world, otherwise we could never evangelize them, and yet love them in such a way that it's a redeeming love. Jesus says in John five thirteen, you're to be salt of the earth, and if the salt's lost its taste, how will the saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under the feet of men. Well, today we come to a passage, I think, that brings these truths together and illustrates uh, for us what all of this means. It demonstrates to us Jesus associating, being friendly with sinners. And it was an association that was understood. It wasn't understood by the religious establishment. In fact, it tra- created a tremendous amount of, of conflict and accusation and hostility toward Christ. But this association for Jesus wasn't optional. In fact, it was critical. It was necessary 
You might even say it was central to who he was. It was central to who he was because he was a Savior who came to seek and to save the lost. That is who he was. He came to befriend sinners, to draw close to them. Now, this passage shows this to us with a a tremendous amount of insight, a lot of lessons uh, that are found for us in verses 9 through 13 of Matthew chapter 9. But before we get into them, let me just begin by reading this brief episode for us. In verse 9, we read, Jesus passed on from there, or as he passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, that is the house of Matthew, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, there are four critical lessons I think we can pick up from this passage regarding Jesus' association for sinners that are instructive not only to us about him, but even for our own lives. These four critical lessons about befriending sinners. The first one in verses 9 and 10 is that Jesus socialized with the scorned. He socialized with the scorned. Uh, We see him doing this with Matthew, who we're told was sitting at his tax booth. Now, if you know anything about the New Testament, you probably understand that tax collectors are not highly regarded. They were some of the most despised people in all of society. They represented a class of people that were generally associated with greed and corruption, a willingness to to sell their souls, if you will. They were traitorous. They were considered by most to be traitorous to their countries, a cutthroat in every way. In fact, the stereotype was so large and true that uh, you can see it uh, played out again and again. In fact, it, it, there's, there's good basis, we might say, for it. When the tax collectors came to John in Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist was preaching and they came to him listening to his preaching and they responded to his preaching and they asked, well, what are we supposed to do? What are we as a class of tax collectors supposed to do in response to your preaching? And he says to them, collect no more than what you're ordered to do. By implication, you are collecting too much. This is a part, this is part and parcel to your trade. You overcharge, you overcollect, you you burden people with excessive amounts of tax assessment, you might say. Later on, Zacchaeus, you remember, in Luke, Luke chapter 19, was a chief tax collector. He was a, a man who oversaw a number of different tax collectors. He hears the preaching of Christ, he repents. And he immediately declares that he's going to give half of his goods to the poor. And with the other half, he's going to return 
all of the money that he cheated people out of up to four times what he cheated them out of. This is what tax collectors were known for. They were known for cheating. They were known for collecting more than what was their due. They routinely did this going beyond what their authority was because there was a system that was set up for corruption. The Romans, as they marched through the uh, ancient world, as they conquered more and more territory, they needed to fund their expansion And so they had to, they were forced to tax the various peoples that they had conquered. And they did it with all kinds of levels of taxes. They taxed your property. They taxed your existence. They had a sort of a census tax or a poll tax. They had all kinds of commerce taxes. It it required literally an army of of, uh, logistical coordinators in every area, every nook and cranny of the empire to, to sort of funnel all of these taxes into the overall machine of the Roman Empire. And not only that, but it required a lot of local knowledge, local language, local understanding of customs, even local understanding of commerce and roads and pathways and all of those things. And so instead of sending out Romans to do all of this tax collecting, the Romans decided early on that they were just going to tax entire districts. They would cordon off a district, they would name, a, uh, they would actually cordon off a district and they would auction off a tax for that district. Judea was one of the districts and they would auction it off to wealthy Romans, Romans of the equestrian class. A Roman would come in and he would make a bid. Another Roman might outbid him. Another Roman might outbid him until you had the top bidder. And then finally that man would pay that sum to the Roman government. And in return for the course of one or three years or whatever the term was, he would have the right to collect taxes from all the individuals in that district to recoup his cost. It was called a tax farming system. Now, once he made the bid, once Rome collected their money, they were largely unconcerned with how the, the uh, equestrian or how the Roman uh, wealthy person went about collecting those taxes. And so it just made way for all kinds of corruption. Uh, people uh, were bound to tax, uh, to, as I said, pay tax on their land. They were bound to pay tax on their heads, they called the census tax or the poll tax. Those were sort of formulated and dictated by Rome. But on top of that, there were all kinds of other taxes, commerce taxes that were dreamt up, taxes on goods and services, on things that were shipped along roads and overseas. So you might be taxed for the fish that you catch. And on top of that, they would tax you for the net that you used to catch them and the boat that you were in when you caught them. They would tax you even for the number of people in the boat. There were all kinds of taxes that were just compounded one upon another. If you carried things between districts, they would tax your your produce in the cart. They would tax your cart. They would tax the number of axles and the number of wheels on your cart. And there was no formula, there was no set guide on how this was carried out. 
It became problematic to say the least. These people who were going around all over deciding on sort of a whim how to recoup their cost and how to uh, regain their money, they would go into the local district they had bid on and they would find local people who were willing to collect taxes, who knew the language, knew the culture, knew the roads, knew the commerce, and they would hire them. In many cases, they were not willing easily to do this because Rome was an occupying power. And so consequently, these people who decided to sign on, these locals who decided to sign on and collect money for some powerful Roman citizen had to be paid, had to be paid in really uh, sort of high dollar fashion to convince them to do this. And not only that, it was so hard to find people who would be willing to do this for the Romans that you had to find some of the most unscrupulous, some of the most unprincipled people out there. And if they ever did mess up, you had to look the other way because you couldn't afford to lose a tax collector. They were hard to come by. And it just bred an entire class of people who were driven primarily by greed, primarily by a lack of loyalty to their own country, to their own people, to their own family, and primarily by a willingness to compromise their principles so that they could make as much money as they can. And so they went out, they were charged, they were entrusted with collecting the taxes however they deemed fit. And so every tax collector wound up being a person who would bend the rules and twist the rules and overcharge. They would deliver some agreed-upon amount to this wealthy citizen, and they would find ways to pocket some extra for themselves. Now, this, as I said, was problematic. Even the Greek and Roman writers in their histories and in their various works talked about this. They talked about how corrupt and how thieves and robbers and criminals were lumped in with tax collectors. They were recognized scoundrels. One of them, a Judean uh, tax collector, uh, a Roman historian writes about him. He was Um, notorious, Capito was his name. He was a notorious tax collector who was known for not only overcharging and uh, stiffing people, but for digging up dirt against people so that if they ever tried to accuse them, he would rat on them to the Roman authorities. And of course, he could do that because as a tax collector, he was connected more closely to the Roman authorities than the common person. And so he had a reputation not only for collecting so many taxes, but for turning over his own countrymen to death and slavery and cruelty from their Roman occupiers. And he was just one of many, many examples. The system was corrupt. So much so that a Caesar Augustus in about the year 20 BC decided he would abolish the entire system, not just in Judea, but everywhere throughout the entire Roman Empire. He abolished the tax farming system because it had gotten so bad and so oppressive and there were so many people crying out from every corner of the empire. He just got rid of the whole thing. 
But of course, in time, the enormous financial strain of the empire demanded that future Caesars, piece by piece, slowly reinstituted it. So by the time you reached the ministry of Christ in about 30 AD, it was back up and running in the, uh, in the Judean and Galilean territories. Now Matthew was a part of this whole system. He was a tax collector. He was sitting at his tax booth. Mark 2.13 tells us that this happened while Jesus was walking along the side of the sea, the Sea of Galilee. So he was at a tax booth positioned on the edge of the water, probably one of the popular landing spots along the sea where the fishermen would bring in their catch every day. And he was there probably collecting taxes on the fishermen, on their daily catches, on their boats, on their nets, or whatever it might be. He would have been well known in the community, Capernaum, Capernaum was not that big if you've ever been there. It's a postage stamp sized little town. There were 1,500 people maybe living in this town. And so Matthew would have been one of the prominent citizens. He would have been one of the well-known citizens. Most of the people living there would have uh, gained their living by fishing and most of them would have been taxed by Matthew at some point in their life. So they had interaction with him. He collected taxes on their fish. But he didn't just collect taxes. He cheated them. Matthew had cheated probably everyone in town. He had taken their money. He had enriched himself. If he was like a typical tax collector. He even became a a sort of a bank for the town, and so he would loan money. But the typical interest rate on a loan from a tax collector was 4% per month, 50% a year, which most people obviously couldn't pay. And so Matthew was probably responsible for repossessing a lot of their property. And through this, he had amassed an enormous amount of wealth. We know that because he throws this huge feast for Christ. It doesn't seem to be a problem for him to pay all that money. This is how people knew Matthew. This was their image of him. He was the guy who was bilking them out of all their hard-earned cash. He was in league with the occupying Romans. He was a traitor to his nation. He was, all, he was in it all for the sake of money. He was greedy. He was cruel-hearted. He was corrupt. He was, in the minds of most people, one of the undesirables. It was made worse by the fact that because being a tax collector, he would have been excluded from the local synagogue He wouldn't have been allowed to attend synagogue services. He wouldn't have been allowed to come and listen to the Bible being taught. He wouldn't have been allowed to sing praises with the congregation. He would have been excluded from all of that. In fact, later on, when Jesus teaches about church discipline, you may remember that he utilizes tax collectors as the prototype of what social isolation looks like. When you discipline someone out of the fellowship of the church, he says they are to become to you like a Gentile or a tax collector, which in the mind of the Jew represent the two people that they would never allow through the doors of their synagogue. They would never allow in the doors of their home.
Now, Jesus, of course, says that not because he's against tax collectors or against taxes, for that matter. Jesus isn't anti-tax. He knew that we have to pay to Caesar what is Caesar's. He's just picking up on the fact that within the context of Israel at that point in history, tax collectors would have been among the most abandoned, isolated, segregated, despised people in society. So Matthew was despised because he was a cheater, because he was filled with greed, he was irreligious. He never went to synagogue. He was associated with people who don't believe in God, who don't worship God. And all of this just compounded his level of disgrace. And yet when Jesus walks along the edge of the sea that day, he encounters this irreligious cheater. And he says to him, follow me. And amazingly, Matthew rose up and followed him. States it very matter-of-factly. He doesn't really tell us much more than that. Luke is the one who emphasizes in his gospel, he left everything and followed Christ. He left his tax booth. He left his lucrative career. He left behind a life of sin as well as all the luxuries that he had accumulated for himself. He left all of that stuff behind and followed Christ. This is what discipleship is. Luke 14 tells us, if any of you wants to be my disciple, he must renounce all And follow me. It may not necessarily involve leaving everything you own, or maybe not even necessarily leaving your job, but it certainly involves a willingness to do that if your job prevents you from serving the Lord. And Matthew was willing. Now, he isn't the only tax collector in the area, not by any means. There was a whole group of these people in all kinds of corners of society. Stationed along roads and at landing sites along the sea, some of them collecting land taxes or poll taxes, all of them equally despised, all of them ostracized from religious life, left with very few options for being at all associated with the synagogue or God, all of them left to one another. They would have been referred to corporately as the sinners, along with the prostitutes and every other undesirable and they would have been isolated they would have been restricted so that their friends were largely of the same lot bad company and no doubt hanging out with one another all the time that would have rubbed off on them and so they only corrupted one another more well these are the group that we're told Matthew gathers together in his home the worst elements of society. He gathered them all because he wanted to introduce them to Christ. All these deplorable people. And he throws a big feast. Luke 5 tells us a great feast in his house and there was a large company of tax collectors. This wasn't two or three or five or six a large company of tax collectors and others who were reclining at the table with him. He throws this huge party, and he doesn't limit his list to just his Christian friends. He invites all the reprobates, and then he invites Christ 
and his disciples. Which brings us to a second critical lesson as we learn about Jesus' association with these people. Not only did he socialize with them, but he endured criticism for doing it. We see in verse 11, he endured criticism from the self-righteous who, who criticized his approach to these sinners. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The implication in their question, of course, is not only that he was eating with them, but that he was approving of their behavior, maybe even participating in their sin, which couldn't be further from the truth. We've already seen that when he interacted with Matthew, he didn't just associate with Matthew But he called him to a life of discipleship. He called him into a life of pursuing Christ. He called him to leave everything behind and follow Christ. That's his his message. That was his interaction. But the Pharisees didn't investigate that. They weren't interested in that. They just make their accusation. Matthew invites all of his friends to this big feast. Jesus attends. And he's not there to charm or cajole them. He isn't there to try to win their favor, seek their approval, garner their good opinion of him. That's not his interest at all. He's more than happy, Jesus is, to be ridiculed even by these tax collectors and sinners. He wasn't seeking favor from them, but he was seeking them. That's the point. He was pursuing them. And it was that pursuit which would bring him all kinds of criticism. In Matthew eleven nineteen, Jesus will even cite his enemies and their words against him when he says that they called him a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That was the words of the Pharisees against Christ. His reputation, in other words, was severely dented from this, at least among the religious elite. They were loud denouncers of these tax collectors as being ceremonially unclean. And they would level their criticism against anyone who associated with them. He received them, meaning that he maybe approved them. Now, The Pharisees, no doubt, established their position from the Scripture. They knew the Bible, and they knew what the Bible said, and they could quote the Scripture, and they probably used the Scripture to justify their position. For example, Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers beloved verse by so many of us, memorized by so many of us. Proverbs 4, do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it. Pass by, Proverbs says. You find those kinds of admonitions all over Scripture. We are to be separate from the world. But what the Pharisees failed to understand was that separation is internal, not external. The language even used in Proverbs 
when it speaks about the pathway or the way or the seat of the scoffers, is itself figurative language, not to be over-literalized. It's talking about the internalization of worldly pursuits and worldly ways, not external avoidance. In that sense, it's very similar to Ephesians 4, verse 17. I say and testify in the Lord, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds, darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardness of their heart. They're callous, having given themselves over to sensuality, greed, to practice every kind of impurity, but this is not how you learned Christ. You hear all Paul's describing there is what? Internal attitudes. You're not to embrace all of this stuff that you see in the world around you that arises out of futility, that arises out of a callous heart, that arises out of a darkened mind and gives way to greed and impurity and sensuality and all those things. Don't walk... But don't walk with those attitudes, is what he's saying. But none of that implies or even mandates external separation. This is where the Pharisees and this is where other religious hypocrites continually err. They continually err. You may remember Paul confronted the Corinthian church over this very thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter, do not associate with the sexually immoral. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. So Paul had written them a letter, and in his letter he says, do not associate with these people. But when he talked about associating, what he's talking about is lifestyle. What he's talking about is these internal attitudes. And they had formulated or they had distorted in their mind what Paul had given as a commandment for purity. They distorted that in their mind to mean no contact. No contact with the world. In the case of the Corinthian church, they actually began tolerating immorality within the church, but separating from immorality outside the church. In other words, they completely flip-flopped God's design. They actually were tolerating hypocrisy. They were tolerating duplicity within the church, but they were not carrying the gospel outside the church. They were not disciplining internally and they were not reaching out externally. And you see that sort of thing all the time. Families, individuals, frustrated, I'm sure, because of the state of society and their own frustrations with sin. They determine at some point that they're going to retreat. They're going to withdraw. They're going to remove themselves from as much contact as they can. 
with the outside world. They do everything they can to remove themselves from any setting that is dominated by unbelievers. They make no effort to bring unbelievers into their life, into their homes, into their churches, into anything that would bring them under the sway of the gospel. They retreat physically. And Paul is clear, that is a distortion of God's design. As a matter of fact, he labels it a form of judgment. It's a form of judgment as he says at the end of, uh, at the end of chapter 5 and verse 12, what have I to do with judging outsiders? What he means by that is you write them off as useless. You write them off as no longer reachable, no longer someone that is worth your effort or your time. You write them off as someone who is hopelessly now under the condemnation of judgment of God. And what Paul says is, that's not your job. God hasn't made you the judge. What is you, your thinking to believe that somehow you are the one that gets to determine if God is going to save or not save someone? What have I to do with judging outsiders? The implication or, or the uh, assumed answer is nothing. That's not my role. The duty God has given to you is to love them. Not to be their judge, but to love them. He's commanded them, you to go and to teach them all that he's commanded and make disciples. And it's a disfigured pursuit of purity that results in a disregard for that commandment of God. To go and seek the lost. It's a disfigured pursuit of purity that leads to a disregard of seeking the lost. We don't judge those outside. We don't confine them to judgment. It's not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to go to them. Go to them. This is what the scripture tells us over and over again. You were formerly darkness, but now light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. You're supposed to shine in the, in the darkness. Philippians 2.12, prove yourselves, excuse me, 2.15, prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights. See, God's call is not for you to separate and to pull out. It is to appear among them as lights. That's your mandate. Paul says, you are not to pull away. When, I, when he says, don't associate with the sex, sexually immoral people, he says, that does not at all mean you would go out of the world. It's almost a quotation of Jesus' prayer for you and me. John 17, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. That was Christ's prayer for you and for me. Don't take them out of the world. Leave them in the world, but protect them as they're in the world from the evil one. We are to connect with these reprobates we're to connect with the lost we're to connect with those who are sick we're to connect with unbelievers 
even while we maintain our purity. Blameless and innocent, above reproach, but in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation as we appear as lights to the world. This is what Jesus was doing, and this is what the Pharisees didn't understand. He wasn't participating in the sinful activity. He wasn't celebrating the sinful activity of these men. He wasn't endorsing it. He wasn't excusing it. He wasn't sugarcoating it. He wasn't doing any of those things. But he was making the efforts to connect and to reach out to them. Even though most of them will not end up following him in the end. That wasn't the point. He didn't go to them because they were eagerly receiving him. Many of them would have not have liked his message. They wouldn't want to give up all of their wealth and their pursuits. But he went to them for a very specific reason. Which he gives us in verse 12. It's in the third critical lesson regarding his association with sinners. It's the clarification of why he preached or the purpose of his preaching When Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. This is why he went. One simple reason. This is why he went. They were sick. He went because they were in need. He went because they were profoundly and utterly lost. His mercy, in other words, drew him to them, not their righteousness and not their eagerness or any of those other things. There is no other explanation for why he went other than the fact that they were hopelessly and woefully sick. And that's what a physician does. He goes to the sick. You can't do anything you're a physician, you really have no role for the, for the healthy, but for the sick. This is why you carry the gospel. This is why you preach. And of course, these people would have been most ready to know that they're sick. They were under no illusion about their sin. This is what drove him probably even more. They were sick, they needed healing, and just as importantly, they probably recognized it. At least to some level, they had no pretense about their wholeness. They had the basic prerequisite of being saved, which is knowing that you're lost. Luke 19. After the calling of another tax collector, Zacchaeus, Jesus tells the crowd, the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. This wasn't just some sort of appendage, you understand? This wasn't some sort of side gig. This wasn't something that Jesus decided to do on occasion. This is why he came. This is part of who he is. He came to seek and to save the lost. Those who know him understand that. They understand that the only way of knowing the Savior is because he sought them out as a lost soul. They remember that. They remember that they were the ones 
who were sought by him. And they in turn emulate that. They emulate that. You know, Luke 14 is an interesting transition. At the end of Luke 14, Jesus tells a little, or gives a little warning. He says, salt is good, but if salt loses its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile, which is one of the uses they had for salt. It's, it's saltiness uh, created uh, sort of fertilization in the soil. But if it has been polluted with other sort of minerals and other things where it's no longer salty anymore, it's thrown out, he says. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So what he's really talking about here is a life that is intended to be salty. It's intended to have impact on the world around us. But if it's no longer salty, it's worthless. It no longer is useful to God. It's no longer glorifying to Him like salt. Our lives are designed to be used, to be productive, to be sort of active agents and ingredients in the world. That's how he ends Luke 14. And he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then immediately, the very next verse, Luke 15, 1, says, tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear him. It's interesting. He ends chapter 14, says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then verse 15 says, it was the tax collectors and sinners who were coming near to hear him. If it wasn't for the chapter break, the connection would be obvious. The tax collectors and the sinners were the ones listening. The religious, hypocritical, self-righteous leaders weren't. They were living worthless lives. They were living lives that had very little impact on the world around them. They weren't listening. And you begin to get the idea why Jesus embraced these people. They were the ones receiving what he had to say. They were the ones who were becoming aware of their sickness. They were the ones who were recognizing that they needed a physician. They were the ones who knew their need for a savior. Luke actually had sort of recorded this all along the way. The sinners were the ones responding. Luke 7, when Jesus responds to criticisms about himself and about John the Baptist when they were criticizing Christ, The passage ends by saying, when all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. So they were responding to the message of John. They heard it. They were open to it. They glorified God for it. It was a message that didn't affirm them in their sin. In fact, it called them to repentance. Luke 3, when John came preaching, he preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 12, and some tax collectors were also coming to him to be baptized, saying, teacher, what shall we do? So he was out there commanding them to repent in order to seek forgiveness, and they were listening. They were listening to John. They were listening to Jesus. These are the folks who didn't know all the rituals. They didn't know all the ceremony. They weren't included in the synagogues. They didn't know all the verbiage. They weren't a part of the religious elite. They were the sinners. They were the ones who were ostracized. But they were also the ones who were ready to humble themselves. They were also the ones who were far ahead of the religious elite. They were willing to listen. 
You remember the story in Luke 18. Two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and was praying to himself, God, I thank you, I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even, tax, even like this tax collector. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but kept beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That kind of tells you the kind of tax collectors and sinners that were coming to Christ. They were the people who were listening. They were the people who knew that they were sick. They were the people who knew that they needed a physician. Jesus befriended these people because he was all about recovering the lost. And they were the ones who were ready to be recovered They were the ones who were ready to listen. And all of this brought Jesus great joy because as Luke 15 says, there's greater joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 who never need to. Or at least in their mind they never need to. So he wasn't all about sitting back, waiting on them to come to him. That wasn't Christ. He was befriending them. He was seeking them. He was pursuing them. He was receiving them. He was embracing them. Because this is what brought joy when a sinner repented. This is what brought joy to God. Which brings us to our final critical lesson regarding his association. Jesus identified the requirement for salvation. That is to say, at the end of verse 13, I came not to call the righteous but sinners... He calls everyone, but he recognizes that those who hear the call are those who respond to the call are those who recognize their sin. He has no place. He recognizes no place in calling the righteous. But those who are sinners, he can call. That's a tremendous insight for you and me. A tremendous insight. If you want to have fruitful evangelism, You find ways to connect with those who know that they're sinners. Plain and simple. If you want to find ways to have fruitful evangelism, it's real basic. Just find someone who knows that they're a sinner, however you do that. Matthew is an illustration of that. He was one of the worst in the eyes of the people of Capernaum. He was as bad as the prostitutes. He sold himself for money He was worse than a thief, worse than anyone else. And yet Jesus comes along and issues him a call when no one else seemingly was. And without really any kind of outward sign, apparently inwardly he was yearning. He was yearning for restoration and for forgiveness. This is why Jesus tells the Pharisees in verse 13, go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. It's a quote from Hosea 6, which is a chapter written to the people of the Lord who were seemingly seeking the Lord. In verse 3 of Hosea 6, they were constantly saying, let us press on to know the Lord. Let us press on to know the Lord. 
Words that sounded sincere, but the Lord says a few verses later that their words are like morning dew, which quickly fades. They loved to talk about their devotion. They loved to talk about seeking God. But behind all of their words of religious zeal was a ton of pride and self-righteousness and hypocrisy. And the point of Hosea 6 is simply this, that you will know true repentance when your life becomes marked by mercy as much as it is by religious devotion. Why? Because you recognize that in yourself, your words are like morning dew. That your promises and your commitments over and over and over again have disappointed. They've disappointed. They haven't been nearly as consistent. They haven't been nearly as devoted. They haven't been nearly as righteous. And so you have a heart filled with mercy. You have a heart filled with mercy. And that's what God wants. He says, I, I, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. By the way, he's the one that commanded the sacrifices. So it's not like he doesn't want the sacrifices. It's not like he doesn't want the devotion. It's not like he doesn't want you studying the Bible. And it's not like he doesn't want you joining together with Christians in fellowship and praise. Of course God wants all that. But he doesn't want that if it comes without mercy. These are critical lessons for you and me. Critical lessons from the friend of sinners. He came to seek and to save the lost. And he commissioned you to do the same thing. I want to invite you once again, if you are here with us for the first time, we have a visitor reception down the hallway to the right. We would love to meet you. If you're here this morning and the Lord is seeking you, if you are one of those lost people, and the Lord is at work in your heart drawing you, please come by. Let us have the opportunity to hear from you how the Lord is at work in your heart to pray with you, to be able to introduce you to the Savior, the one who had mercy in our life and how he can save your soul. Father, we're grateful for this, so thankful for a reminder much, much needed in our life. We repent where we have isolated ourselves and grown cold and hardened. We recognize that it can be satisfaction with ourselves and a forgetfulness about the mercy that drew us, which causes us to shrink back from the lost. Give us then, Lord, fresh remembrances of the mercy that sought us out and make us true disciples of our Savior, the friend of sinners. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.